Good morning. This is Daniel Dawson with another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. Today, we're going to interview Mr. Jerry Cox of Corvallis, Montana, and formerly other cold places in North America. Jerry, how are you doing this morning? We're, we're good. Very good. 30, 32 degrees here this morning. Whew. We were 55. I couldn't decide whether I needed a, a long sleeve t-shirt or a regular t-shirt. South Louisiana benefits. <laughs> We usually we get things started off with the lightning round icebreaker questions, uh, and this is just meant to be icebreakers and and kind of kind of get the rapport built and get everybody relaxed and everything. So we'll start off with those. What is your favorite way to relax? Uh, laying on the couch and uh, watching Judge Judy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Morning or evening. Mid-afternoon. I'm 67 years old. <laughs> bay or sorrel? Oh, bay horse, yeah. Got to have a bay. Does pineapple belong on pizza? <laughs> oh, they don't hurt it any. Okay. Do you have a particular horse-related pet peeve? Watching somebody turn their horse loose and slap it on the ass. Uh, what a way to end things. Yep, that's a good one. Yeah, I don't um, like that. Favorite beverage? Coffee in the morning. Okay. Hey, hey, Dan. Nice cup. And in, in the infamous Mountain House Stables coffee mug. Perfect. <laughs> Tell us something unexpected about you. I'm not much of a country western music fan. What kind of music do you like? Uh Give me a hard rock blues guitar and I'm and I'm in. Okay, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that kind of thing, or, or what? Uh, yeah, I like Stevie Ray, he's pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he's a Jimi Hendrix uh, uh imitator, and I love Jimi Hendrix. Okay. My favorite Hendrix tune, Velanova Junction from Woodstock. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you choose? <laughs> I say icebreakers, right? Just get oh, you out, out of the rut. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the ones I don't have. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, hell, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Visibility, be able to fly, shoot lasers from your eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, flying would be kind of fun, I guess. That's, that's the one I would pick. Although I'm scared of heights. Oh, well, that might be a problem too. <laughs> Thoughts or feelings? You're more of an analytical thinker or more intuitive, go with your gut, feel your way through it sort of a person? Uh, I, I might be more of a feeling gut kind of guy. I don't know. Never thought of it. So I guess I'm not a very thoughtful guy. I never thought of it. <laughs> Do you have a favorite piece of tack or tool that's uh, horse related that's just kind of your go-to? I have an old crates rope and saddle and it is always my go-to. It's about 30 something years old. I bought it brand new and uh, nothing fits me as good as that thing. And I've got, I've got uh, for a while, I had three of them exactly the same but it was always that one that fit me the best. And they were exactly the same, all three of them. I got two of them now, I sold one, but uh, even, even between those, it's always that one I, I go back to. Do you have a favorite book or movie? Once Upon a Time in the West. 
That's a good one. You bet. Harmonica man, huh? You bet. You brought two too many. <laughs> uh, yes, that's right. What preventable question or problem do you get sick of answering or dealing with that you just kind of wish the horse world would figure this out and we wouldn't have to deal with this anymore? Is there anything like that for you? Uh, starting colts at two-year-olds. I get sick of that. Is that a good one? Is that what you meant? Or is that a problem? No, no. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in the, the oh, deal. Okay. Yeah, to me, it's just kind of a... Uh, a senseless debate uh, half the time, but uh, anyway, we'll talk about it later if you want. Yeah. What's your favorite dinosaur? <laughs> I know they're meant to be a little silly. Like I said, get, get you out of the rut and into the informal stuff. So <laughs> I, I guess that one that has the, uh, it, it kind of looks like a rhinoceros and he has two big old horns and a plate coming off of his head. I don't even Triceratops. Whatever it is. That's my favorite one too. Very good. Okay, choice. brother. All right. And have you ever had a UFO encounter? No. All right. I'm awarding you 107 points for that, Jerry. That's the highest score we've had yet. So, so very good job. <laughs> All right. Now we'll kick off the, the question and answer portion of it. So why don't you give us the 30,000 foot view of who Jerry Cox is and what your life has been like your journey to right now? I thought I was only supposed to answer questions. That's a question. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was born. I was born in the little town of Omak, Washington, which is famous for its uh, annual rodeo in August, and they have the famous uh, Omak Stampede Suicide Race. You ever seen that? I am not. They, yeah. they run these horses uh, down off this long, steep hill, and I mean, it's like this steep. And at the bottom of that long, steep hill, they dive into a river, swim their horses across the river, come out of the river, and then they sprint about 300 yards to a finish line, and the survivor wins. So that yeah. makes the man from Snowy River look like a coward, basically, huh? <laughs> well, it, you know something? Uh, man from Snowy River, uh, that was a hell of a ride that guy did down off that hill. But try lining 25 of them side by side and come boiling off a hill the same way. It's, oh. uh, it's wild. It's Western. And uh, I don't know, deadly. Uh, they have killed a couple of horses there uh, doing it, but um, only a couple. And uh, as little kids... We all grew up wanting to be suicide racers, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. my, my uncle won that race a few times, and I had a cousin win it twice. But look it up, uh, suicide race, OMAC. O -M -A so how did you get introduced to horses as a young boy? Other than that, you actually, I'm assuming your first ride wasn't in that race. How did that begin for no. you? Uh, no, but oh, as little kids, uh, my grandpa had an incredible ranch. Uh, he had 1,200 acres. He was a hardworking man, bought that ranch when he was uh, in his mid-20s and had a beautiful young wife, and uh, he raised five children there and just worked like a dog and had no education, but somehow he bought that ranch and he worked it and he paid for it and he built up a herd of, I think he had like 450 Hereford cows and some bulls. And he farmed all that. He hated all that. He did most of it with uh, teams of horses uh, until I think the late 50s. And then he got himself a farm tractor. And 
and then converted all of his uh, horse-drawn equipment to work behind a tractor. So they were still mowing with the old horse-drawn sickle mower and the old horse-drawn rakes so that they rigged it all up to go behind that old Ford tractor. But uh, in the wintertime, they uh, fed cattle up on the hill, you know, with the old box sled. And uh, sorry about that. Yeah, they took an old bob sled up there and uh, uh, fed cattle in the winter. And so as kids, my uncles, they were horse breakers. And uh, they started, you know, dozens of colts every year or, or more. And as little kids, we sat up on the fence and we got to watch and just study what was happening. And sometimes they'd get some of those colts and they'd get them to the point where they were doing their ground drive and they'd just snatch one of his kids off the fence and throw us up on there. And, and uh, we'd be hanging on. Sometimes those colts would get a little frosty. And we'd get scared and start crying. They'd be yelling at us to, to shut up. You're scaring the horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, it, it was a lot of fun growing up that way. Not many kids have that sort of introduction anymore, do they? Well, you know, uh, probably not like that. Uh, those, those old ways are, are going away. Out here in Montana, there's a lot of it left. Uh, we've only been out here three years, but uh, we've met some just incredibly wonderful people out here. And uh, some of those old ranchy ways are still mm -hmm. still going strong out here. And In fact, I had a kid come working for me here and 17 years old. I said, God damn kid, where'd you learn how to work like that? Because the kid just works like a bull. And he said, Montana, born and raised. Uh, yeah, that, that spoke volumes to me right there yeah no choice yeah well, more of us should teach our kids to slay dragons i think mm -hmm. instead of uh the protected bubble that they grow up in they should be getting some calluses and some bruises and a broken bone yeah. here and there sort of getting some hard knocks and some fortitude added to them well i do agree i do agree so what about alaska um how did you you come about that move? Well, well Alaska is uh, an interesting story. Uh, my folks divorced when I was young, and uh, my dad went to Alaska in about 1965. I guess I was about 10 years old. And, uh, well, I went to visit him in the summers. And uh, by about that time, we'd moved away from ranch country and up to the coast of Washington. So I wasn't around horses out there. Uh, but I remember, you know, some of the kids that I met, uh, I'd be kind of envious. Uh, some of the richer kids, you know, their, their daughters had horses. And uh, there were times where I'd ask them if I could go ride their horse or something, you know, but uh, uh, we sure as hell couldn't afford one. But Oh, but going to Alaska right after high school, uh, my dad was still up there and the Alaska pipeline was going on and we lived in kind of an impoverished little area in Washington. There was kind of a dead end little town. I just called him up and said, shit, I want to come up there, work on that pipeline. And he said, well, come on, let's go for this, help you figure that out. So I went up there and you know, worked on the pipeline, you know, as a 19 year old kid got myself a truck driving job, you know, up there. And, uh, it'd be my, my first, uh, my first job on the pipeline was hauling a fuel truck over Adigan pass. It's like, uh, the most notorious, uh, hill on the whole trans Alaska pipeline It's four and a half miles up the side of this hill at a, I think it was a 
10% grade or something. And uh, shit, I didn't know how to hard to drive a truck. And the, I remember on the test drive, the guy took me out and kind of showed me how to drive it. And he said, when you get to that hill, you put that thing in first gear and you crawl to the top. And when you get to the top, you turn around and you keep it in first gear and you crawl to the bottom. And that's, that was my introduction to being an ice road trucker. I was, uh, that was uh, back in the day. And I did that for about 13 years, ran, uh, ran trucks up and down that uh, pipeline hall road. It was a lot of fun. I sure enjoyed it. That's, that's baptism by fire for sure. Yes, sir. It sure you was. Pull that thing down a mountain. You're only going to do it one time and then you well, don't worry about you it. Know something, uh, I, I saw several accidents. Uh, I had a couple of friends die in truck wrecks and, uh, it was it was dangerous. You see the TV show, the Ice Road Truckers, and it's just kind of silly, you know. Uh, most of those guys that I watch on that show, we would have fired. It was a little more. I don't know. It was kind of wild and western back in those days. There were a lot of guys like me that showed up, didn't really know how to drive or do anything, and hell, they just threw us in a piece of equipment and just hope we survived it, you know. And we kind of, mm -hmm. like you said, trial by fire. I, I kind of sought out the old timers and got advice from them and because I, I did want to survive it <laughs> yes sir yeah we want you brave but sensible huh mm -hmm. so how did you get back into horses in alaska believe it or not there there are a few horses in alaska and oh when i was in my early 20s uh i, I bought a little cabin on the side of a mountain up there and uh Built myself a little barn and got myself a horse, I guess, when I was about 27 or so. It was kind of an interesting story. I met this old guy. He had a bunch of horses. And I'd go down there and I'd ride with him. And he had a couple of guys come up from Idaho that were horse breakers. And I went and hung out with those guys. And they were kind of old school horse breakers. And the guy that reminded me of uh, the way I grew up watching my uncles break horses. And so I kind of watched what they were doing. And then uh, this guy let me start a couple of his colts. And then I kind of worked with these guys a little bit that summer. Well, then I just kind of started reaching out and studying and got my own horse as a two-year-old and started him. And Back in those days, you know, I didn't have a computer or anything. I didn't know how to look at videos or anything like that. But I would seek out anybody that had uh, suggestions or advice, and I'd watch what they were doing, and I'd try to copy what they were doing, I guess. And uh, then, oh, a few years later, Al Dunning came to Alaska. Okay. And I went down and met him and watched one of his clinics, and I thought, man, I'm this guy's handy, you know, and then mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of pick up on some of those things. I didn't ride in his clinic, but uh, I went and watched and then a couple of other clinicians came and I went and watched. And then I thought, man, I'm, I'm going to enter one of those clinics one of these times. And then I rode with Les Boat. He came up there. I got to ride with Les a couple of times. And in fact, uh, uh, he, he filmed uh, the clinic there in Alaska and he used some of the clips with me in it uh, to put in his uh, Cowboy U video series and uh, I always tell but my one of my claims to fame is I'm in the Les Folk Clinic's uh, video there and uh, I, I think he was probably saying no, this is what you don't do, to, to watch this guy don't do it like that, I think that's why he picked those clips but, but it was a lot of fun and uh, 
And then from there, I just started trying to ride with, when I'd see a clinician come, I would try to sign up or go watch and just pick up pointers. And, and then people started asking me if I'd ride their horse for them or start their horse. And just grew from that. So you wound up with an app horse up there. Is that the one that you got then, or did you trade up to him? And Oh, old Sam Malone, my Appaloosie. Yeah, uh, kind of interesting story on old Sam Malone. I was kind of broke at the time. I'd been married and divorced and kind of hit rock bottom, but still had my little cabin there, and I was living in that. Somebody said, uh, hey, there's a guy who's got a couple of horses for sale. And, of course, I was curious. I went down to look and got here. He was. He was about eight months old, just handsome looking Appaloosie, you know, uh, he was, he was a bay horse with a perfect white blanket ass. And, uh, he was about eight or nine months old. And there was just something in my soul said, God, that horse belongs to me. And I think the guy wanted seven or 800 bucks. Well, I didn't have any money to speak of. And this old guy that I was riding with, I was just bullshitting with him one day and he says, do you want a horse? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, I've got one down. Uh, that he'd given to his niece and he says she doesn't ride him anymore if you want him you can have him so I went down picked up the horse brought him home and got him cleaned up trimmed his feet got him shod you know started riding him a little bit and getting him going and then right down the road from me uh, there was a pretty nice barn down there god this Appaloosa shows up there one day he's just approaching two and I swing in there and this lady had bought him and she'd had him for almost a year, I guess. And uh, I rode up on my little horse and I was looking at him. I said, well, what are you going to do with him? And she was scared of him because he was pretty gentle, you know, but she was scared to be the first person to ride him and all that. And I said, well, let's, let's bring him out and play with him. So I brought him out. We worked with him. And hell, pretty soon I just slung a saddle up on him and moved him around a little bit. And... Uh, I said, well, hell, let's just step up on him. So I just stepped up on him. Heck, he was pretty good. He kind of jumped around a little bit. And I just kind of got him lined out. And I said, let's take him for a ride. And she said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, let's swap saddles. So I put my saddle on him and put her saddle on my little horse. And away we went for, I don't know, maybe about an hour ride. And she's giggling and smiling. I've owned a horse for a year and I'm finally getting to ride one. And of course, I'd look over there and I'd say Oh yeah, you look good on him too. You know, he's he's just the right size for you, and he's gentle and he's ready. And uh, pretty soon I said, "Heck, we ought to trade." <laughs> he goes, Are you serious? I said, "Yeah." She goes, "Okay." So we traded right there on the spot. I took old Sam alone home, and kind of the rest is history. Uh, he went on to become a great horse. Uh, we had him till he was twenty six, and, and then he just passed. You know, got some old age issues, but. God damn, he, uh, he won every endurance race he was ever in. A calf roped on him, team roped on him, taught him to pull a sleigh. Little old ladies could ride him, little kids could ride him. He won every trail challenge he was ever in. In fact, I took him to a horse show one time, and it was just kind of a play day kind of a horse show. And, you know, you just kind of sign up as you go. And all these people, hey, can I ride your horse in the trail challenge? Yeah, yeah. So 
when they announced all the winners, is that in first place, Jerry Cox, Sam Malone. Second place, Steve so-and-so, Sam Malone. Third place, Cindy so-and-so, uh, Sam Malone. Sam Malone, Sam Malone. He, he took like the for top five places. I was pretty proud of him. So, so were you a Cheers television show fan? Is that where the name came from? or? Oh, well, I don't know that I was really a, a Cheers television uh, fan, but uh, the gal had named him Sam. And so when he came to me, I mean, just Sam alone just rolled off my tongue, and there it was. It's stuff. Okay. Yeah. It makes it memorable for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was a fun horse. So well, I'll tell you a quick story on the endurance ride. I was out, our, my little cabin sat up on the side of the mountain, and I could just go right out the back door and up over the hill and into a big state park. And hell, I was up there riding him around one time. And here come these two gals trot, 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 trot on their horses. And I just kind of pulled off the side and hello ladies as they rode by and they stopped. Hey, are you out uh, uh, training for the endurance race? I said, well, what's that? I, I'd never even heard of one. And they said, yeah, there's a big endurance race this uh, next weekend or something down at this little park. And I said, well, what is it? And I said, well, it's 30 miles. You, you know, and they come ride your horse and they, got to do these vet checks and all this bullshit, you know? And I said, uh, well, gosh, they said, you ought to enter it. And I said, well, God, I haven't been training for anything like that. And I said, but maybe I'll come down there to watch it and help. And so <clears throat> that Sunday or whatever it was, I just crawled up on my old horse and just kind of long trotted him down to the, where they're doing this endurance race. It's about six miles down the road. And I pulled in there and I knew a bunch of the horse people there and, uh, I didn't have any money in my pocket or anything, you know. Uh, I said, well, I just came to help, you know, maybe give me a walkie-talkie and uh, some bottles of water in my saddlebags and said, and I'll just kind of bring up the trail. And if anybody's having trouble, I can call it in or stop and help somebody, whatever, right? And he said, oh, no, you need to enter, Jerry. You, you need to enter. And I said, well, I don't have any money. And, well, hell, they pooled some money. I think it was a $35 entry fee or whatever. And they paid my entry fee and they gave me a vest. Uh, oh shit. So there's probably, I don't know, 35, 40 riders in this 30 mile race. So I didn't really know what to expect. And, uh, I didn't even know, I didn't know about the vet checks or any of this shit. So, uh, the gun goes off and away we go and trot, trotting down the road. And I'm just kind of talking to people as we're going, trying to figure out what an endurance race was. And every seven and a half miles, you got to stop for a vet check. So, we made it about seven miles down the trail there and looped back to wherever these vets were. And you got to take your horse over there. And, and once their respiratory rate gets down and their heart rate gets down to a certain level, then you start, I think, a mandatory 10-minute rest or something. And I rode in there. They vet checked him. I said, well, shit, he's good to go. Uh, start your 10 minutes and then... And then off I went again. Pretty soon uh, we get to the end of the race and hell, we cross the finish line. We win the race, right? And oh, there were some people somewhat back behind us, but we cross the finish line and they, they do a final vet check there too, I guess. I don't, I'm trying to remember. But anyway, at the end, Sam Malone not only uh, won the 30 mile race, but they voted him the best conditioned horse because uh, I guess I've been riding him enough. I didn't have to be out mm -hmm. doing any special training, you know. But I was kind of pretty proud of him for that, too. Oh, cool. 
So uh, at some point you wind up back in Washington and you start Mountain House Stables and, and you kind of become a, a bona fide horse trainer. So how did that come about? My wife, Kathleen, and I, we, we, uh, we got married in uh, 99 and we'd been together a few years, but we, we built up this nice little horse facility there in Anchorage. And, you know, we were saving money and working hard and saving hard. And we'd uh, kind of talk like our plan was that we would work until later in life and get this little pot of money saved up and then sell our house and go buy a little ranch someplace and kind of retire with at a ranch, a little ranchette or something. Right. And then in uh, 2000, our son got killed in a car accident and uh, it, he was 19 years old and just starting to live his dreams. And I looked at Kathleen and I said, look, uh, life is short and death comes at random. And I don't want to wait till we're in our 60s to go buy a ranch. And by then we were, I guess, about 52 or whatever, or whatever we were. And uh, so I want to go do it now. So we started looking and then uh, we found a really nice place down near Spokane. And I was raised in Washington. Omac's about a hundred and some miles from this ranch and I was kind of familiar with the area. My wife was somewhat familiar with the area. She grew up around Idaho a lot. And so we bought the ranch and uh, sold our place in Alaska. And I just hit the ground running hard and started breaking horses and uh, living the dream there. And uh, I'd been breaking horses in Alaska, you know, just a couple here, a couple there, and then doing a couple of my own and uh, and then doing a little show and doing a little raining and stuff like that and roping. And, but uh, for uh, 14 years, my wife went back and forth from the ranch to Alaska, two weeks on, two weeks off, and uh, kind of helped us keep our heads above water. And it was, it was a great deal. She had a great job in Alaska. She created a, uh, uh, entry level construction training program up there. She had training centers all over the state. And I don't know, several thousand people went through that training program over the 14 years. She kind of helped people launch uh, lifetime careers through that program. And I'm really proud of her for that. Very good. But, but at the end of that 14 or 15 years, uh, when she was getting ready to retire, our daughter had settled out here in Missoula, which was about six hours away. And we both decided we wanted to be close to her. So we sold the ranch and we bought this little place we have out here in Corvallis. And Ooh. Kind of the rest is history. We've been here three years, loving every minute of it. <laughs> well, have you ever thought of living somewhere where it's not cold as hell? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever eaten food in the South? I'm just curious because I mean, you know, pretty good down here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I tell you, every winter it sure gets tempting. I'll tell you that when winter comes. <laughs> so. Would you consider yourself much of an experimenter when it comes to training? Are you willing to just try some new thing and see what happens or are you oh, more? Always. Okay. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. Always. You know, uh, I've had the great honor and privilege of riding with a lot of really good horsemen over the years. And I always say, Hey, if I could become one, one hundredth the horseman of any one of these guys that showed me anything, I'd feel like I'd accomplished something. So I'm still trying to hit that one, one hundredth mark, you see, <laughs> but I, I, I could say almost without exception that, uh, almost every one of those great guys I've ridden with have expressed how excited they were that maybe the next week or next month they were going to go get to ride with uh, so-and-so or this guy or that gal. They were going to show them something that they would do. They couldn't wait to learn something new. So we, we should always keep our uh, eyes and our minds open. There's no one set way to do anything. And we should always be trying to explore, experiment, listen to, and try new ways that might be more and more uh, gentle. There's nothing wrong with getting a little firm with a horse, of course, but uh, if we can find new ways to do things, uh, boy, I'm all for it. You know, we've had five Road to the Horse champions put on clinics at our place over the years, and a lot of them have come multiple times. Uh, Craig Cameron comes every year and he has for about 13 years. Dan James, he comes every year and he has for the last several years. Uh, Chris Cox has been here, but Dan James, uh, I've laid horses down with Dan James and, uh, and Jim Anderson, he and I, you know, the, the, we've laid horses down at clinics and stuff. People come around, they want to see how it's done. And a couple of years ago, somebody was asking, Dan was here. Somebody was asking him about laying a horse down. And, uh, and I, I saw him kind of hesitate for a second. He goes, he says, I don't do it anymore at clinics. He says, because there's a process I like to go through. So I used to always lay horses down with ropes. He goes, I'll never do it again. He says, there's, there's other ways to do it. And he says, I've learned how to teach a horse to teach himself to lay down. And I thought, I thought that was interesting. You know, he said, I'll, I'll never use ropes again. Goes hand so, in hand with his Liberty stuff, I guess. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you talk about a Liberty uh, guru. That guy's a damned wizard, man. He's it's, it's really impressive to watch that man work a horse. I'll mm -hmm. tell you what, it's very impressive. He seems like a genuinely good guy and, and oh. a fun dude to be around too. Oh, one of the best, one of the best. Well, uh, well, I, that, that kind of brings us to your clinics and all that stuff. Do you want to uh, expand on that a little bit more? You, you want to talk about that? Do you have any coming up or anything like that in the near months? Or Well, uh, in fact, this coming weekend, uh, we're traveling up to Helena, Montana. I don't know. How, how far away is that, Kat? Three hours? Yeah. yeah, it's about three hours away. And uh, we're doing a little clinic there. Uh, it's a yearling clinic, so the horses will all be about 18 months old, and they've never been saddled or bridled or anything like that. I mean, they're all gentled. I, I've never met any of them, but um, we're going to, I'm going to go up there, and I think there'll be five or six horses, and I try to keep those kinds of classes small, and we'll, we'll do some groundwork and try to get the horses uh you know, moving hips and shoulders and listening, softening and getting them prepared for their first saddle. And then we'll get them all saddled and we'll work them around and then we'll teach them how to take their first bridle. And uh, 
then we'll get them flexing off of the bit there a little bit. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the second day, uh, we'll, or even in the morning of the second day, we'll start ground driving them a little and just kind of get the idea in their head and then come back and, and do it again in the afternoon and, and get them all ground driving good and softening to the, to the rains and responding to rain pressure. That's, a, that's our next clinic, but uh, we put on quite a few of them here uh, every year. And I do introduction to horsemanship and uh, groundwork and then riding skills. I have this little exercise. Got it, got one right here. Now, I didn't stage this, I promise you. But I got, did I send you one of these? I don't think so. One of these little exercise cards? Uh-uh, I don't believe oh, it. You're getting one. So I got this... Uh, what I call my 12 basic ground skills. I like every, that I like every horse to know how to do. And I got what I call my 12 basic saddle skills. I think every horse should know how to do. All right. And that's what I teach at my classes, you know, and, and I tell people, even if it's my favorite old horse, I bring him in. I do a little a check through all the ground skills, make sure his mind is with me today. And when I get on him, I check all those 12 saddle skills, make sure he's with me. Then I go riding, but I don't just, you'll never see me just throw a saddle on a old horse and just get out there and ride him. I don't care if I've been riding him for 10 or 12 years. I mean, I always do a little checkout on him, just like kind of a pilot's checklist, you know? Yeah. 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 Not a bad deal. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to send you one of these. Uh, and uh, Do you have one of these? I don't have one of those. Nope. Jeez, man. You I feel like the, the one person in North America that doesn't have one of you. Yeah, you might be. You might be. <laughs> I do have some of your flags, though. I, I got a couple flags from you. That's last right. Week. I even uh, took them on the road with me and, and did a few clinics with them. So I, they're they're Daniel tested and approved. I like them. Okay, well. good, good. Uh, and still, they're they're durable. I still still have them and I'm using them daily. Um, oh, that's good. You also had done some playing with Mustangs. You want to talk about that a little bit? I think you had done some Mustang makeovers, but also uh, some work with the Border Patrol or something like yeah. that. Yeah, we uh, we got into the Mustangs so a little bit there. And, uh, and we did like, we entered three of those Mustang makeovers. Uh, but we have the, our first one we had to back out of because the, the horse came to us lame. And we didn't really recognize the lameness until we were getting going on her. And uh, she had kind of an old shoulder injury or something. And she went to kind of limping on it. But I'll tell you, she was a contender too. Uh, I mean, within 30 days, she was doing sliding stops. I could step off of her and she would just about lay herself down. She was jumping over a hoop of fire. I mean, she was just doing it all. I thought, God, she's a contender, man. And then she started limping. We had to, so we had to back out. But uh, then we did a couple more and we took third both times. Both times missed first by two and a half points. Uh, we were kind of right there in the top, you know, in the top three anyway. And, uh, and then the border patrol, uh, that our ranch was about 40 miles south of the Canadian border. And there was a border patrol station there. And they came and said, hey, we're going to uh, start a Mustang program. And we'd like to board our horses here with you and, and have you work with us and our horses. And they called it Project Noble Mustang. And the first 35 Mustangs for the Border Patrol came through our ranch. And I guess they came about four or five at a time. 
I'm trying to think, yeah, I guess four or five at a time. And they'd drop them off there and a couple of their wranglers had come down and well, we'd work with their horses and, and then we'd ride them. They came out of the prison program there in Colorado. Okay. And so those old prisoners, you know, they'd put the first 90 or 120 days into them and then give them to the border patrol. And then we'd work with them at our place. And these guys would ride them for a couple of months and then ship them off to other border stations. And then they'd get five, four or five more. And so we ran 35 of them through our little place there. Did you make sure that the border patrol agents knew the difference between a rain and a whip? As a uh, remember the picture that was oh. taken on the southern yeah. border of the CNN. Well, the, actually, I, I was... actually, I taught them how to do that. So <laughs> perfect, yeah. yeah. A human. <laughs> yeah. We did do a lot of. Uh, we did a handful of clinics with them too, uh, where they brought in several of them, and we taught them how to walk across mattresses and stuff. And I said, you know that. About as close as you'll get to simulating stepping on a man so uh <laughs> might as well just you know if you need to plow some guy down or run over him i said you better have your horse uh, ready to step on something gushy <laughs> so, so we rode him across mattresses and uh just all kinds of stuff and uh i was, I was quite honored too uh they came and uh, practiced and put together a little parade show with about 12 of them, I guess. And they hauled them off and they rode in uh, an inaugural parade when uh, Barack Obama became president. So yeah, that was kind of fun to be a part of that. I figured I would ask this here. Usually when I ask if you're an experimenter, I then ask for your most spectacular failure, something that you tried that blew up in your face. I figured that might be tied with the Mustangs. So I, I would stick the question here. Is there, there a... Uh, happening or event that you can recall that just made you go, yeah, we'll do that again or anything like that. I had a lady bring me a horse one time and I didn't know the horse. I just kind of knew of it. And I'd seen her ride it a few times and she'd had some, uh, some goofball start and work with the horse. And this guy was kind of a dink. And she brought me this horse and it was fat as a butterball anyway. And the, it, she couldn't steer this thing. You know, it would just kind of run off and lift its head. And uh, she, she couldn't make it steer or anything, you know. And she asked me if I'd work with the horse. And I said, yeah, sure. So she brought me the horse. And day one, I put him in my round pin. And... I walked into that round pin and just, I didn't pay the horse any attention at all. And I walked over and I was just going to grab one of my little whips just to kind of get her to move around or whatever. And that horse saw me pick up that whip and turned. And, and I mean, I hadn't even looked at her and out of the corner of my eye, she was headed for the gate and tried to jump the gate and she hung her armpit and opened up her armpit. So, so I had to call a lady day one to say, we've had an accident and it wasn't pretty. So what I learned from that was whatever horse you put in that round pin, if you go put too much pressure on them and they're wanting to climb out, it's kind of your fault. And even though I hadn't put any pressure on this horse, what I failed to do 
was give her the time to explore that round pen for herself. Cause I just turned her loose in there, closed the gate, walked over there and started to pick up a whip. And that's all it took. And she was gone. Now, this guy must've, you know, choused her pretty hard. And I've watched that guy before. I know who he is. And uh, he's pretty hard on a horse. And so I learned something there and I felt terrible uh, about the horse getting hurt. And it kind of taught me that I need to give that horse a little more time to, to, to I'll say, uh, I use this term to gather her wits. So she went in there and, and I, and I in, in retrospect, I recall she was a little nervous going in that round pen looking around and stuff. And I never gave her the opportunity to come down and gather her wits and then start in on it. And so on that note, uh, I'm very cautious. I don't care who the horse is. I'm very cautious the way I just turn a horse loose in a round pen from that day and that experience and just kind of watch and see if they have gathered their wits and if they are ready for me to approach and engage them. Is that kind of what you were looking for? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good yeah. one. That, that actually brings to mind a similar story. I wouldn't say this was an experiment of mine, but we had a customer when I was in college he was an insurance agent and a guy that was pretty well off, but very notorious for looking for the cheapest deal that had something wrong with it that he could find in the horse world. And he bought these two half-brother Pasifinas and brought them to the barn. And they were some snorty. I mean, like you'd enter the stall with them and they would go to the back corner and, oh, you know, that kind of. A, oh, yeah. And I got the first one and brought him to the round pin. And I had done like you just said, turn him loose in the round pen. And then I'm getting my gear. I'm bringing my saddle and my, my pad and everything. And, and just like you said, I'm not really paying attention to the horse at all. And I, I sling the saddle pad up on the side of the round pen and the saddle. And that horse in the round pen went and jumped out on the other side. And I, I, mean, I wasn't even in the round pen with him. I was on the outside just putting my gear up. And he actually knocked himself out. I didn't know a horse could do this, but he didn't clear it smoothly. He hung on his stifles, which kind of catapulted him down and hit on his chin. And I'm running around there, and, I mean, he's just out cold. I thought he was dead. You know? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, he just broke his neck. And sure enough, here in a couple of seconds, he kind of comes to and gets up and starts staggering around. But uh, what you said is exactly – I always frame it this way, the – the horse is the one that chooses how much pressure it takes and how much yeah. pressure is too much. And, and our relative thing of normal doesn't necessarily apply to that horse right there. That's so right. for that's some right. horses, a little bit of pressure can be way too much. That's, that's right. Good that's lessons. Right. Fortunately, yeah. you don't run across many of those. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that's why when I'm kind of working with people, I'm a petter, not a patter. And uh, it, it uh, you asked pet peeves earlier. It's a pet peeve of mine to watch people watch them just walk and start slapping on a horse or, or patting them. And and I, I'll say, hey, pet, don't pat. Pet, don't pat. And almost everything I'm trying to teach, I said, you know, we're not here to try to learn how to work with this horse. We want to try to have habits that we'll take to any horse we meet. And you walk up to some horse that you don't know 
and you go to pat on him, you may spook him or ignite him to think, man, he better go on the fight. And the example I gave was we had a Mustang in one time. Oh gosh, she was a man eater. I'm telling you, this thing was dangerous. And, and I got her caught, haltered, somewhat, you know, settled. I was getting her saddled and she was bucking almost every time I saddled her. I mean, I just did everything I could to help this horse figure it all out. And finally getting her settled and I'm petting on her and I'm just kind of stroking on her. And anytime somebody come up to the round, they say, hey, come in here and just pet on this horse with me, you know. Because I, I wanted her to start liking humans, right? And this guy came walking up one time. I said, well, come in here and, and pet on this horse with me. And um, he walks up there and he put his hand. I said, don't pat. And he, and he went to whack her on the neck like that. And I mean like that quick. She gnashed out with her teeth, just missed his face, and then struck out with her left front foot and just missed him again. I mean, by inch. I said, Jesus, man. Then she was spooked, you know. And then, you know, I said, Jesus. I said, Pat, don't pat. He goes, well, I pat all my horses. I said, well, she ain't your horse. You don't know her. I said, pet her, don't pat her. I said, you spooked her, man. I said, Oh, God, I thought he might have got killed right then and there. You know, it's, you get pawed in the face, man. And, you know, it's over. <laughs> so anyway, pet, don't pat is kind of one of my little uh, catchphrases I use a lot. So you do what you want at home. I don't care. And there's a time and a place. Like, don't, I'm not saying I never pat on a horse because I do. But boy, there's sure a time and a place for it. And yeah. you walk up to some horse you don't know. It's probably not the time or place to pat a horse. Yeah, you got to build I, a little rapport. First, yeah. let them know who you are and everything. Yeah. I, I tell people, like, I can walk up and kiss my wife square on the lips, but if you try it, you're probably going to get a very different reaction from her, you know? So, uh, uh, <clears throat> um, Well, Jerry, it's time for the sponsor of this episode. We'll do our, our little blurb for them. And this episode is sponsored by the American Society Simplifying and Exemplifying Sarcasm, also known as ASSES. Did you know that 80% of Americans rate as subfluent in sarcasm? As an aside, 78.34% of statistics are totally made up. Anyway, at the American Society, simplifying and exemplifying sarcasm, we know you are smart enough to tell the obvious from the obviously wrong. Heck, we promise to definitely even help you to recognize hyperbole and stop using the word literally when you really mean figuratively. Recognize when others are being humorous in your presence at ASSES, we've even seen a strong correlation between people learning to read when others are being disingenuous and voting better. Join our movement today and become a fellow ass. The fake sponsors are, are definitely my favorite part of this whole podcast. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> Might be the, the excuse I use to do those. <laughs> All right. So we talked a little bit about uh, starting horses as two-year-olds. I'll, I'll first ask you, is there a particular stage of playing with a horse that's kind of your favorite stage? Like, would you rather halt or break babies or, or, or play with yearlings or starting two-year-olds? Or do you kind of prefer when they're three-year-olds and have a few months on them and they're a little more secure and safe and so forth? Is there a particular part in there that's your favorite? Well, I, I've had the great honor and privilege of starting uh, hundreds of uh, young horses and 
I kind of like that two-year-old phase of life as they're coming to and just teaching them some of those ground skills and helping them build their confidence and, uh, and uh, preparing them for the next phase of life and getting that first saddle on them and getting them to settle with it and actually kind of enjoy it. And I like teaching them to take that bridle without any problem where they actually kind of enjoy it. And those first few rides, uh, I, I can say I, I thoroughly enjoy it. It's got its own kind of thrill. It's got its own kind of risk. At, at my stage of life, in the last few years, I've had someone else get up and put the first few rides on them. But I've done all the prep work. And then I like to get a young person that will listen to you and that I know is pretty handy anyway and uh, tell them what I want when, when they get up there, you know, that I give them instruction and they listen. And the hardest thing for some kids, you know, or and even adults or people, whatever, is to refrain from wanting to grab them and pull on them if things start to go wrong. And instead, of, instead, you know, if you can just you grab your grab handle and just kind of ride it out and let, let him kind of find himself. And I always say, I give a horse about three strides to fix himself. So if he starts to spook and then we snatch him, well, hell, we've re-spooked him. But if he starts to spook and if I can just kind of go with him, he, he may find himself and come back to normal. And I, I always want to try to give him that opportunity. So when I got those kids up there, you know, I, I just have to bark at them pretty hard. Don't pull, don't pull. And, and a lot of times they, those colts will come back and find themselves. Say, just rub him, rub him, rub him, rub him, you know, love on him. Because he came back and just, I just want him looking for that quiet place. But, but yeah, I love that first 30 days on a colt. It's just so much fun to me when, when you feel them get it. You know, and you kind of pick up and say, I want you to just pick up those shoulders and just take that step to the right. Oh, man, when, when they get it and, and, you know, they're almost reading your thoughts. They're, they're, I don't know. There's just nothing more rewarding than that. Just those little changes, you know, and you know what I'm talking about. Oh, You've yeah. done enough of them. They change so much it, and it, it, it all happens so fast. You go oh, from, man. from a horse you can't do anything with and 30 days later, you can put him to work, you know? So, yeah, it's it's fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, So, Jerry, how do you feel about starting a horse as a two-year-old or you, you feel like they live by a calendar or does it not matter so much or, or what? People bring me a two-year-old to start. I generally uh, just look him over and see if he's of a robust enough stature to carry a rider. I mean, if he's a real fine bone, skinny little uh, runted kind of a horse, uh, I'd probably not get on one that looked like he was fragile. But a lot of these two-year-olds, I mean, well, they've got stout stature to them. And I see no problem stepping up on a young colt that might be like 20 months old 22 months old if he looks like he could pack a human and just put those quiet rides on him i'm i'm not an advocate and i've seen people and heard people say you have to walk trot and lope your horse on the first ride and 
I'm not so sure I believe that. Uh, I say, get on him if he's ready. Walk him if he's ready. Trot him if he's ready. Lope him if he's ready. And if that takes getting on him 10, 12 times and uh, riding him a dozen times for a couple of weeks or whatever till his confidence comes up to a point that you think he's ready, well, then move him out. But it's my, just my opinion, and of course, you know, it's just an opinion. You get on a young colt and you say, well, this is the way you have to do it. You know, and everything's at right angles. I have to walk, trot, and lope. You lope him up and you scare him and crash him into the panels or, or spook him and uh, get, a, get him high-headed and wild-eyed. Uh, you haven't done him any good service. That's my opinion. And, you know, I got to ride with Chris Cox, and he said, you know, as a two-year-old, the horse has 20 years of service out in front of him. Well, why do you feel the need to rush his first 30, 60, or 90 days? There's just no need to rush it. You educate him. You get him ready. Everything's about preparation, right? So I want to prepare him uh, for his future. And as a two-year-old, uh, there's just nothing wrong with just getting up and just riding them around, guiding them a little bit. If they feel like they're ready, go ahead and move them out, pick them up, slow them down, speed them up, slow them down, stop, turn, back in a little bit of a circle, whatever. So that's just my opinion. I got a couple of 18-month-old colts out here that uh, they're my horses, and I've been saddling them and ground driving them. And heck, at 18 months old, I've got this little gal that's going to come around. I'm going to start throwing her up there and just letting her just ride them around as I do groundwork with them. She weighs 120 pounds, you know, she's not going to hurt. Her. And uh, then they get used to, you know, motion up there and her moving around. She'll be rubbing on them and, and uh, moving back and forth and they'll start feeling a human on their back. So can, can you hurt one? Yeah, you sure can. If, if I always say this, oh, can you hurt, can you hurt a colt? By riding him uh, at two, yeah, you sure can, if you want to. <laughs> I don't want to, and I know you don't want to, and none of us should want to. But if you override one, you sure as hell could hurt one. And my advice is uh, don't override your call. Yep. I feel a lot more protective of them now than, than what I did when I was younger, and particularly yeah. the, the really athletic ones that want to stop hard. I make sure that those downward transitions are – are smooth and easy and we, we might like lope and then break down to a trot and then stop rather than trying to mark 10 foot 11s on him and that sort of yeah, thing. That's right. Yeah. I found when I was in the, the cutting horse futurity game, it's a, a real, real common thing. And in fact, we even have a job title called loper and they're basically the, the usually young girls and they're, they're warming horses up. And probably 15 years ago, I stopped loping. And I started long trotting and just long trot a few circles and then go work the cow on them. And my hock injections and stuff went down about 75% after that. Uh, people think it's the hard stops and all that really hurts the horses. But I, in my experience, it's the wear and tear of loping all those circles that does more damage than anything else. I, I think um, you might be right. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, like you, I, I don't think they, they respond to a calendar and I've started piles of, 20 or 22 month old horses and 
as long as you use good sense and you're protective of them. I have uh, fortunately been doing this long enough that, that now some of the first horses that I started are are old horses and, and starting to age out and die of old age. But I know for a fact I've got several in their 20s that are still going right now that mm -hmm. we started as two-year-olds way back when. Um, yeah. I don't think it's a death sentence. And I have to say back in, in 2007 when the slaughter horse ban hit, and it, it so dramatically changed the horse market, all of a sudden I started getting six-year-olds and eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds in to break mm -hmm. that had been sitting out in pasture. Mm -hmm. And I have actually had more soundness issues starting those older horses than I ever had starting the young horses. Huh. And I think like you had alluded with the Mustang that you had, um, that's pretty common in those competitions. I don't know if you know this, but about a third of the horses that they start for each of those Mustang makeovers don't stay sound enough to go into the competition in the end. I, I think didn't know that. I, I didn't think there's that. something with the, the horses that get to a certain age and they haven't. It's like, like taking a 40-year-old guy and he's never exercised and then making him run marathons. Well, yeah, his knees are going to give him some problems, you know, but you, you mean guys like you and me. Yeah. But yeah. If you take a 12 year old kid that ran cross country and they never stopped running. Well, by the time they're 40, they're still running marathons, right? It's yeah. not, a, not a problem. So anyway, people kind of lose their minds over some of that stuff sometimes. Yeah, I, I think so. Get a little too emotional about it. And, uh, I got. I see people. You shouldn't ride until they're five or six or whatever. You know, you're just kind of. I just think it's rather silly. But. Makes life a lot harder on us too. Uh, yeah. The mind of a five-year-old is significantly more set in its ways than the mind of a two-year-old. And yeah. physically, they're a lot bigger and stronger and can hurt you. So. Yeah, and, and you know, and for me, my opinion, you know, for my own personal young horses, uh, I'll kind of get them started, and then. Like even these guys, I've had them for uh, well, almost three months, I guess. Uh, the one horse is two months, but I'll work with them for a few days, give them a few days off, bring them back, work with them for a few days, give them a few days off. And then when you, when you bring them back, man, their retention's so good. But if you just kind of grind and drill on them, uh, you'll kind of burn them out. And that's my opinion. You overwork a young horse and you burn him out and you sour him on what on what you want him to become you make him sour he'll 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 hate to see you come uh, i've seen that happen uh i can't say i've ever done it uh but i've seen people do it they just sour a horse or he just he just hates it when a human comes up to catching a shit you guys are just gonna work me to death but you just build them up and turn them out and work with them a little and a little at a time and uh I think you get a little bit better horse out of the deal. It's just my opinion on it. Your years of doing this, I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons. Is there any particular thing that you wish you could go back and tell an 18-year-old Jerry, hey, kid, when you're messing with these horses, you need to watch out for this or, or hold yourself back here or, or what? what? What advice would you give the younger Jerry? Um, just uh, – uh, the younger Jerry, in fact, it was kind of interesting. I just put a little comment on Facebook to a young gal who I really admire. And there's, there's a handful of them out there. They're in their mid-20s. And these girls, 
they're just going for it. You know, they're, they're riding with big name guys and uh, they're learning and they're becoming such highly skilled horsemen. A young Jerry Cox, an 18 year old Jerry Cox, I would say, figure out what it is you want to do. And in your early twenties, go align yourself with some of these guys and, and go work for free, go work for biscuits and gravy, sleep in your truck, whatever it takes to learn from those master horsemen and go, go learn what you're supposed to know then instead of later in life. You know, don't, don't go through the school of hard knocks, go through and go get educated by educators. You know, one, one of my mentors, and you know, he's one of those road to the horse champions, Jim Anderson. He said, you know, Jerry says, there's lots of people that can ride and teach at the third grade level. He says, then you start getting some that make it into junior high. And you got some high school level riders. And then you got your college university level riders. But then you got your professors. He says, there aren't many professors. Mm -hmm. So always go try to align yourself with the professors. That's good. Make good sense, Tim. And uh, we've talked a little bit about learning here. Do you have any particular learning resources that you would point people toward? Uh, obviously, you like the one-on-one, the, -on -one, the clinic version with, with these guys, but are there any any other places or ways? Like, a, I, I need to plug this for you. You've got a, a fantastic YouTube channel where you regularly work horses and talk your way through it and show things like that? Are there you know, any self-learning resources, books, whatever that might come to mind for you, for others? Well, I'd say uh, there's probably no place else to go but the Jerry Cox YouTube channel. I mean, what else is there? <laughs> I love that. And he's humble. Yeah. Thank, thank you, baby. Uh, I just say, uh, don't get stuck. And I'm not going to mention any names, but there are some people that go uh, study maybe someone's method or uh, program, and then they become stuck and they say, well, this is, it's this way. And it's like, well, God, have you ever ridden with this guy over here? No, this guy knows it all, or this person knows it all. And you have to do it that way. And it's, man, you, you know, you need to go expand your horizons. So I, you say, what resource? There's all kinds of YouTube stuff out there and all kinds of very talented people out there on YouTube. And um, I just say, watch them all and just pick up little pointers. I think one thing that helped me uh, a lot over the years was when people brought us horse, we did a lot of filming. And at the end of the day, you know, we'd ride five or six horses in a day. At the end of the day, we'd bring the camera up, download the whole thing, then edit it out. And then we'd, we'd put up a four or five minute video of what we did today with that horse. Well, reviewing all that video, man, you start seeing stuff in there. Like, oh, I see what I did there, man. I'd never do that again. You know, or, or, oh, I see what I did there. I could see how if I just lifted my hand just a little bit, that, that could have been better or whatever. But you, you can self-critique yourself and coach yourself just by videotaping your rides and coming back and seeing what you did that you could have maybe done better or different. I completely agree. I think video is, is one of the greatest resources that we have now. 
um, I do some video coaching where people can send me like a 20 minute clip. And then I have a program. I put it in where kind of like the old John Madden football stuff, we can reverse it and slow it down and draw a circle right here to draw your eye to this and so forth. Or they may send us a 20 minute clip. And when I send it back, it'll be an hour long. And then I can voice over the top of it. And I think the, the potential of learning from video is just incredible. It really, oh, wow. that's, that's powerful. You got to tell me how you do that. I'd, I'd be curious to learn some of that. Uh, well, I have people send me videos fairly often. I mean, a few times a week. And the one I've been using is called Coach's Eye. I recently got an email from them, I think last month, that they are actually ending that program. So I'm fixing oh. to find another one. Too, okay. that, that's kind of what it Cross was. that off, Kath. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could look for substitution or replacement, but it's it was pretty simple to use. Uh, the hardest part is you, you need to get really a Dropbox subscription because video files are such large files. You can't yeah. typically just email them to somebody. Yeah, I probably wouldn't know how to do that. I'm not all that techie. Well, it's, it's not that bad. If I can figure it out, I'm sure you can, but it's a pretty pretty good resource. It really is. And, and I have had, I don't know if you've run across any of these customers, but occasionally I'll get a person where I'm, I'm telling them, you know, your hands are really high and they'll look at me and go, oh, no, they're not. <laughs> okay. Well, here, why don't you watch this video? You tell me if your hands look yeah. high to you. <laughs> yeah, your hands are kind of high. Well, that's how I always ride. Okay. Yeah. And that's why your horse's head's like a giraffe. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway. Okay. Well. Oh, hey, by the way, Dan, uh, I've switched from uh, coffee to water, and so you got to have the old uh, <laughs> Mountain House Stables water glass going on there. You see. Nice, man. You have any highball glasses or anything like that? I'm a, I'm a whiskey and rum guy sometimes. So. What does success look like to you? You know, what, what makes you happy in the horse world? What's What sort of you take a horse from point A to what's, what's point B look like to you? You know, I, I've never been a, uh, a horse show person. I, I've gone to a few uh, to some competitions like these Craig Cameron extreme cowboy races and stuff, you know, but I've never really done much like the AQHA um, shows or anything like that. We've done a few of them and uh, oh, I've won a couple belt buckles, you know, in the raining and stuff, but I just, I just never pursued the horse show much. Done some uh, roping at the rodeos and stuff like that, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I rode bucking horses a little bit and uh, which I didn't really enjoy. It hurt, you know, when you hit the ground because uh, I was never very good at it, but Success to me, um, I guess a measure of my own personal what I would call my success, if I if I want to even call it success, is and I encourage everybody to do this. Li just live your dream. If you're living your dream, you succeeded. You know, and whatever your dream might be, if it's just buying your first horse uh, or having your first horse, if it if it's going to be success in the horse world, if that's your dream, just to own your own horse, well, and you get one, you know, you've succeeded. And my dream was a little bit different. I wanted to have my own 
place where I could have my own horse and rope cabs in my own front yard. And even in my little cabin in Alaska, I lived in that little cabin for 24 years. I had a calf roping arena in my front yard and I lived just on the outskirts of Anchorage, Alaska. I was the only guy in town I know that had a calf roping arena in his front yard. <laughs> and then when I married Kathleen, I sold my little cabin and we moved about five miles around the corner about, about this house. And yeah, I had a roping arena in that yard. I pushed all the dirt back around and, and shit, we had roping shoots and everything, you know, I just brought all my stuff with me. And yeah, we roped steers and calves in our front yard. We're the only people in town to this day, I'm sure, that had a roping arena in their front yard. So living the dream is a success. And it didn't matter if you have a million dollars in the bank. My first dream was uh, when I was about 13, I guess, I'd hiked up into this faraway place in Juneau, Alaska, and with this other kid that knew his way around. And we stayed two nights in this little tiny cabin. It was like maybe eight by 10 feet. And it was propped up on the side of a cliff with prop poles like this. So there was a platform. So there's a cliff, prop poles, a platform, and then this little cabin shack on there with a little wood stove in the corner. And you could look out and the view was just incredible off of this little shack. And this, this shack is probably 60, 70 years old, maybe older. And uh, I remember laying there in my sleeping bag and the door was open. I could see down out of this canyon and there was Mendenhall Glacier down there. I remember laying there on the floor at night, looking down there and I said, one of these days I'm gonna live in a little cabin on the side of a mountain in Alaska with a million mile view. When I was 22 years old, I found that cabin and I bought it and I lived that dream for 24 years. That's success. Did I have any money in the bank? No, I didn't give a shit about that. Every night, man, I'd look out off of that cabin and I thought, man, this is, I'm, I'm living the dream. So yeah. that's success, brother. That's I success. It. I think one of the best successes you've had is finding that lady that'll let you keep building calf open arenas in the front yard. Well, She's I tell you what, man, there. I tell you what, me and you both, brother, uh, I, I know you do the same. You wake up every morning, you kind of pinch yourself that they'll have us. Yeah, <laughs> lucky man. Yep, absolutely. Well, Jerry, it's been a, a wonderful conversation. You're sure an interesting guy, and, and I've enjoyed picking your brain a little bit. Uh, I sure appreciate you coming on here with us. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, hey, if you ever find your way out in Montana, uh, we're just about one hour south of Missoula. Okay. And, uh, there's always a place for you to bunk up here with us. That sounds great. I'll okay, you. brother. All right. Well, thank you much, man. I sure appreciate it. And send me your mailing address. Uh, I'll have a, a coffee cup and a whiskey glass coming your way. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> okay. I, I have never thought of uh, of the, the coffee mug marketing plan, but that that's pretty slick, reminding of you every morning, huh? <laughs> uh, hey, I'll, let me tell you a quick story on those coffee cups. When we, well, years ago, I had some coffee cups made up, and just for the fun of it, and I gave a few away. And I'll bet we have given away a thousand of those coffee cups over the years. Wherever we travel, we throw a few coffee cups in a bag, give them away. And uh, they're all over the world. 
uh, I had a lady going to China and I said, here, I sent, I just mailed her a couple of coffee cups and a t-shirt. And when she got to China, she found somebody, gave her, gave them the t-shirt and here's some China, Chinese girl over there wearing one of our Mountain House Stables t-shirts. And then, and then she was taking pictures of my coffee cup here and there. And then she went to one uh, place, a store, I guess. And there must've been a thousand coffee cups in there for sale. And she took one out and she hung one of our coffee cups there, took a picture of it, then left it there. <laughs> so we did that a few times. We went to Ireland one year and uh, well, we went, stopped at some little place and here's a bunch of coffee cups. I just took one of theirs down and hung one of ours, just left it there. <laughs> but uh, I've got one, uh, one of my coffee mugs is in uh, Antarctica. And uh, there's, yeah, there was one of my horse, Facebook horse lady friends uh, posted a picture of her. She works in Antarctica. She's wearing a black bikini standing out on the ice and holding up the American flag or something. I forget what. And so I sent her a message. I said, uh, hey, I said, I'm sending you one of my coffee cups, but I want black bikini on the ice holding up a Mountain House Stables mug. So she just got back there just a few days ago. So uh, I, I'm anxious to get that photo. But That's perfect. They're all over hell, man. We've had a lot of fun giving them away. and uh, uh, They've been a lot of fun. It's been one of the surreal things for me. I think there was one week that I did a, a consultation uh, phone call to someone in Canada, someone in Norway, and maybe someone in South Africa. And just the whole idea of how, in what world is it a normal thing to talk to people halfway around the world about a horse? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's surreal. And then the, the DVD that we have, um, we have that on every continent, but Antarctica. And I don't foresee an Antarctica connection, but maybe I need to, to pull on you a little bit harder. I could get a black bikini picture with one of my DVDs or something. Uh, I'm going to set you up. I'm going to set you up. That would be yeah. something. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Yeah. You betcha. <laughs> and by the way, I've loaned your video to a couple of different people. And uh, so you need to go watch this because it'll, because they want to come ask me about, well, what do you think of this bit? And I look at that Tom Thumb bit. Uh, let me take that thing out. Let me show you a couple of things. Yeah. But yeah, I've loaned that video to a couple of different people so they can uh, watch it, study it, and kind of think about, you know, what their hands are doing to that horse's face, you know. So very it's a great good. video, by the way. You did a lot of work on it and a lot of research. It's very professionally done. Thank you. Thank you. We hope it makes a dent at some point. So. Yeah. All right. Well, once again, Jerry, thank you very much for coming on. It's, it's been a pleasure. You too, sir. Thank you. Take care.